0: Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning back to our study on the book of 2nd Timothy. Find 2nd Timothy and uh, we will be this morning in verses 11 to 13. Uh, I do want us to back up to verse 8 this morning as we read so we can read verses 11 to 13 in, in context. Uh, But I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Counting the Cost, and looking at our responsibilities and how we have a cross to bear and we're to deny ourselves. And boy, we don't want to hear that today, do we, in uh, in modern Christianity. uh, So many people want to make it all about us and uh, feel good and so forth. But we need to remember, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have a cross to bear And we are to deny ourselves and follow Christ. The crown doesn't come until after the cross. People want the crown now, but the cross comes first. And then one day, we will reign with him. Now this morning, we're mainly going to be in verse 11. And the first point of the message I've got three points, but don't get nervous when our time is about up and we're still in the first point, okay? Because we're going to be in the first point for the majority uh, of the message. Uh, You're going to also need to find Romans chapter 5 and put a finger there. And you're going to need to find Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 24. Romans 5, Matthew 10, and Matthew 24. I'll repeat those passages later on, but I wanted you to be prepared. Some of the places we were heading this morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The same is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Father, we read in the book of Psalms where the psalmist said that your precepts would be his teachers and his counselors. Lord, may your word this morning be our teacher and our counselor. May your Holy Spirit use these verses in my words this morning to impact life. Lord, that it would make a difference in the way we live our life day to day. What we do from the time we get up to the time we go to bed. What drives us? What motivates us? What is our life about? Paul was able to get to the end of his life. And say that he had been faithful. His life had been poured out as a drink offering to you. God, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that we would be able to proclaim the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. According to some, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the world's foremost theologians and thinkers of the early 20th century. Bonhoeffer is perhaps best remembered for his courage and his willingness to stand against the wave of evil that swept across his beloved country of Germany. You see, Bonhoeffer pastored churches in Germany leading up to World War II and during World War II and he was disturbed by the shifts within the German church under the pressure of the growing Nazi regime. As the German church officially supported the Aryan agenda, Bonhoeffer separated himself And led the establishment of a new confessing church that would stand upon the authority of the scriptures. After traveling to the United States on one occasion and finding safety here, he left the safety of the United States to return to Germany. During one of the most heated times, and he joined the resistance movement against Hitler. Bonhoeffer was hung in a concentration camp just after his 39th birthday. He understood, perhaps more than most of us today, that following Christ involves suffering. He didn't hide from it. In fact, he embraced it. In his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Today's passage is about the cost of discipleship. Folks, this passage of the Apostle Paul falls within that discussion that we looked at last week where we saw uh, Paul uh, confessing that he was willing to suffer for the gospel and do anything necessary for the sake of the elect. He didn't mind suffering for the sake of the gospel because he knew that as he preached the gospel, the lost would hear and many of them would be converted. And so any price he had to personally pay for the spread of the gospel was a price that he was gladly willing to pay. You see, Paul wasn't motivated by personal comfort. He was motivated by seeing the lost one and churches established. And Paul is commending that very same type of commitment to young Timothy. He desires that Timothy would join with him uh, in suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he assures uh, Timothy that suffering will not go unrewarded. Folks, today we need to visit passages like this over and over again to be reminded that Jesus never promised the believer a life without trials, a life without difficulties, a life without suffering. The easy believism we see in a lot of circles today of Christianity is totally foreign to New Testament biblical Christianity. What we learn from these verses is that while there is a price to pay for living for Christ, it is a price that is matched even more with the assurance of a Savior who will be true to everything He has promised to His children. The world may despise us and disappoint us, but Jesus never fails. First thing I want you to see this morning is the believer's union with Christ. Verse 11, he says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, folks, it is believed that in this verse here and going all the way down through verse 13, Paul may have been quoting from a well-known Christian hymn at the time. In fact, some believe that Paul may be the one who wrote that Christian hymn. If he didn't, it's very Pauline in character and content nonetheless. And you'll notice verse 11 is prefaced with that statement, this is a trustworthy saying. We see that phrase from time to time in the pastoral epistles. 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And usually it's right before something very significant that Paul is going to say that he wants Timothy to remember. Here the trustworthy statement is that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Some believe also that this is a saying that uh, they would have new believers confess as they came into the baptismal waters to make their public faith in Christ uh, uh, public through believer's baptism. That in addition to saying Jesus is Lord, this is a statement that either the person doing the uh, baptism or the baptismal candidate themselves would repeat this statement right here. Folks, the Christian life is described as a death on the one hand but a resurrection to a new life on the other hand. Now, the longer passage in the New Testament that that discusses this very same thing, you'll want to write down Romans chapter 6. And as you write down Romans chapter 6, I want to challenge you this afternoon to read that chapter in its entirety. I wish we had time this morning to turn to that passage and go through that because it's the extended teaching on what Paul is saying right here in verse 11. Now there are two thoughts that come to mind in this whole discussion of being united with Christ The first thought that comes to my mind is very rich in theology And the second thought is rich in application And folks lest you think that I'm about to get off on a subject and chase a rabbit for the next five or ten minutes I assure you I'm not There's a rich theological discussion that you and I need to understand if we're going to properly understand what it means to be united to Christ. Most of us don't really understand that statement in its fullness. And I think it would help us immensely if we did. I think it would lead to even greater gratitude to the Lord Jesus for what he's done for us. And so while we're going to turn away from verse 11 here for just a moment what I'm going to say has enormous application for verse 11. Now concerning the first thought that I say is that I said is rich in theology, let's think about our union with Christ in the sense of his headship over us. Let's think about our union with Adam, And now as believers our union with Jesus Christ. In the whole discussion of imputed sin and imputed righteousness theologians speak of the federal headship of Adam and then the federal headship of Christ. And what I want you to understand this morning is that all of us in here are either in Adam, we are represented by Adam, he is our federal head, or you are represented by Jesus Christ. Everybody in here falls into one of those two camps. You are either currently in Adam or you are in Christ. Now turn back with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse 12 is the discussion of all this. In Romans uh, five twelve, he says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was, uh, indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And so Adam, we see there that Adam stood at the head of the human race. He represented man because let's admit it, folks, he was the only man who lived at that time. It was just Adam and Eve. And so when Adam sinned, man sinned. In fact, Paul uses the aorist indicative at the end of verse 12 when he says, All men sinned. It communicates a past completed action. Now I want you to follow the point here. All men had not even been born yet, and even so, when Adam sinned, all men sinned. Again, some theologians refer to it as the federal headship of Adam. Augustine added a little different twist to the federal headship idea. He called it seminal headship or uh, natural headship. And, And what he emphasized is that at the time all of us were in Adam's loins because we came from his seed. We were united with Adam in his sin and death. And so, in a sense, when Adam sinned, we sinned. And that's why we're born into sin. We're not born with a clean slate where we would have the possibility of living a perfect life only to learn later on perhaps how to sin. What did David say about this? He said, in in sin my mother conceived me. We come into this world with imputed sin, or as some would say, inherited sin. Probably imputed sin is the better word. Folks, when you hear somebody talking about original sin, this is what they're referring to. And as such, we don't have to be taught to do wrong. We have to be taught to do right. But we don't have to be taught to do wrong. We have imputed sin or inherited sin because we are united with Adam. And unless you think that's not fair, giving the opportunity to sin ourselves, what do we do? We sin. If Adam wouldn't have sinned, guess what? You would have and I would have. In fact, there are three things that have to be said to those who would say that it's not fair that Adam's sin is imputed to me. Let me use some of Dr. Wayne Gruden's words here for the next few moments. And if you've got a theology text by Charles Ryrie out of Dallas Seminary, he discusses the same thing. Millard Erickson, one of our Baptist theologians, discusses the same thing. Wayne Gruden discusses this. All of these theologians talk about the federal headship or the natural headship of Adam and that of Christ. But listen to what Gruden says about this. He says, first of all, everyone who protests that this is unfair has also voluntarily committed many actual sins for which God holds us guilty. These will constitute the primary basis of our judgment on the last day. For God will render to every man according to his works as Romans 2.6 says. Secondly, as I indicated a moment ago, if any of us had been in Adam's shoes, we would have done exactly what Adam did. We would have sinned. How do we know that? Because look at our lives now. We sin. But thirdly, and most importantly, I would say to those who think it's unfair to have Adam's sin imputed to them... Would you also want to argue that it's unfair to have Christ's righteousness imputed to you? I don't think, I don't think anybody would argue that. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. You can't embrace the good news without also embracing the bad news. And that's the argument Paul is making here. As Adam represented us, so does Jesus Christ. As you were in Adam and when Adam sinned, you sinned. As you were in Adam and he represented you, if you were in Christ, He represents you now. And you have life and peace. Romans 5.19 says, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so again, Adam, our first representative, sinned and God counted us guilty. But Christ, the representative of all who believe in Him, obeyed God perfectly and God counts us as being righteous. That's simply the way God has set up the human race to work. God regards the human race as an organic whole, a unity represented by Adam as its head. And God also thinks of the new race of Christians, those who have been redeemed by Christ, as an organic whole, a unity represented by Christ as Our head. And what did Christ do? Christ lived a life of perfect obedience, perfect active obedience, and perfect passive obedience. Active obedience, he perfectly kept all of the law without breaking the law even at one point. Passive obedience, he went to the cross and all of my sin and your sin and guilt was placed on him and he died. And so just as in Adam, sin and death entered the world and we die because of our union with Adam, likewise through Jesus Christ and our union with him, we're made righteous and we live. Folks, again, what all this means is that you're either in Adam or if you're a believer, you're represented by Christ. And if you're in Adam, you die. And you have nothing but separation from God and eternal hell to look forward to. But if you're in Jesus Christ, you have the forgiveness of your sins and you have the reconciliation of your life to God and you enjoy eternal life. And so Adam, the first Adam, brought separation from God. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, brings reconciliation with God. In this thought of Christ representing us and being the last Adam, when Christ died, we died. There is a union that God sees between the believer and Christ. When he died, you died. When he was raised, you and I will be raised. Folks, in other words, what we're talking about here is principles and precepts that have to do uh, with the substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us in our place. He was able to because he was sinless. And there's a great promise for the believer. If you are joined with Christ in his death, you will be joined with him in his resurrection. Again, going back to our text. In verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also what? We will live with him. Now let's bring all of this down to a simpler level of application that has to do with living the Christian life every single day. And so while we've considered theology first as it relates to our redemption, now let's think in terms of what our union with Christ means every day related to our sanctification or living the Christian life. Practically, in our everyday lives, there is to be practice that corresponds to our position. We are to become practically what we already are positionally. Because we are united with Christ to His death, we are to die daily. We are to die to self and live for Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so every day we are to die to self and we are to live for Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because you're united to the death of Christ, living the Christian life means that you begin the Christian life with a funeral, so to speak, right? A funeral. You die to self and you live for Christ. Paul said, I die daily because daily we're in a battle against three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And so every day as I live for Christ, I need to die to self because what does self desire? Self desires the things of this world and the things of the flesh. Folks, it's just basic discipleship. We have a cross to carry. These folks that talk like the Christian life is just one big party every day. I don't know what they're talking about. Do you? To hear some people talk, you would think they never face any trials, never face any tribulations, never face any opposition, never face any difficulty. You've got to ask yourself, are they even a believer? The lost man wakes up every morning and what does he think about? What am I going to do this day that satisfies me and my pleasures and my desires? The Christian man is to wake up every morning and as John Stott says, it's to be like we roll out of the bed and up onto God's altar and our life is to be a living sacrifice to Him. Two totally different ways of living. Jesus said we can't follow him unless we're ready to do that. He said you cannot be my disciple unless you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow after me. Folks, crosses today, boy we made them so pretty and nice, haven't we? This jewelry we hang around our neck. A cross was an instrument of death. Death. It'd be like today hanging an electric chair or something. Or a lethal injection symbol around your neck. Would you do that? No. No. A cross back then, though, was an instrument of death. And Jesus said, you've got a cross to carry, and I've got a cross to carry. And you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross, and you need to follow Jesus. It's not always going to be nice. It's not always going to be happy. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be convenient. But we've died with Christ. There's not only a cross for Christ, there's one for you. Remember the old song? Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. But here again we talk about bearing the cross in such trivial terms, don't we? We say, you know what, I don't like my neighbor because his kid rides his bicycle across my yard. But I guess that's just my cross that I'm going to have to bear. Give me a break. (laughs) There was nothing trivial about the ancient cross. Most of us want to follow Jesus until it interferes with our plans. We say, I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as it doesn't interfere with my family. I'll follow you as long as it doesn't conflict with my job. I'll follow you as long as it doesn't take too much of my time or commitment. I'll follow you as long as nobody at church hurts my feelings. We all have these conditions, but Jesus said, if you don't forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple." You can't be. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels when the multitudes were following after Jesus, he would turn around and he wouldn't say, y'all come, I'm happy to see you. He put up all these walls and barriers and hurdles, emphasizing to people how
1: difficult
0: it was going to be to follow him. But again the promise in in verse 11 of 2 Timothy 2 says if we've died with him we will also live with him. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ united to his death, you're going to be united to his life. It's God's promise. Now folks we don't become Christians just simply to get heaven. I mean, you got to admit, it's a pretty nice thing, isn't it? We become a Christian to live for Jesus and glorify Him. Heaven's just the icing on the cake. If you've died with Him, you'll live with Him after the cross is a crown. You see, the unbeliever, think about this, the unbeliever goes from life to death. Or should I say, from death to death? That'd be better, wouldn't it? From death to death. But what does the believer do? The believer goes from death to life. The unbeliever has spiritual damnation and death for all of eternity. The believer has spiritual life and blessedness for all of eternity. All this ties in with what Paul is saying to Timothy. Don't miss the context because Timothy might have been sitting there thinking, Paul, look at you. Look at where you are. Look at what you've experienced and you are about to die. Why in the world would I want to follow in your footsteps? Paul says, Timothy, join with me in suffering. Endure everything for the sake of the elect That they too may hear and be saved Because if you've died with him You're also going to live with him A union with Christ that affects everything about your present And everything about your eternity Secondly this morning I want you to see the perseverance of the saints the perseverance of the saints, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, folks, what can be said about the perseverance of the saints? I think we can sum it up by saying true belief will persevere. False belief will cave in. And you know what? I think in these days in which we're living, we're going to see more and more and more so-called Christians cave. You know why? Because they're not believers to begin with. Look at Matthew 10 for a minute, verse 22. Matthew 10, 22. Jesus says there, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You turn over to Matthew 24, and you'll notice much the same thing in Matthew 24, verse 13. Notice what Jesus says there. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said those words not just once but twice. And we're going to talk about the context of those words in a moment. Both of these passages, you'll remember what Jesus was doing as the context of both of these passages. He was sending his disciples out telling them that they needed to go out. And maybe, maybe they had all these visions of grandeur because they'd seen Je- all these multitudes follow Jesus to where on one occasion he even had to get in a boat and push off from the shoreline to get away from the crowd a little bit. All the multitudes up there on the Sea of, of Galilee. And, and they might have been hearing these words about Jesus sending them out and in their minds they had all these kinds of visions of personal grandeur. Lest they set out with that false idea, Jesus gave them a full description of the kind of treatment they were going to get. He said, you can expect rejection, you can expect persecution, you can expect hatred. I can almost see the reaction in their faces as they're hearing all this. Then he said something that every believer today needs to hear. He that endures to the end will be saved. In other words, Jesus is telling them it's not so much the the commencement of their ministry, but the completion of their Christian life that counts. The completion of it shows whether the commencement of it was real or not. It's not just how you begin, it's how you finish that matters to God. Now the second time Jesus said these words was in the context of his teaching about the end of the world. I I think in Matthew 24, he's talking about Jews who come to faith in Christ during the great tribulation. And what they can expect. He said they could expect wars and famines and earthquakes and drought as the world comes to an end. He also said they could expect persecution and rejection and even murder and false prophets would arise and abound who would be saying, I am the Christ. And then Jesus gave that statement again. He who endures to the end will be saved. Folks, Jesus is making it clear that the Christian life is not going to be a bed of roses. We, You and I need to remember we are in spiritual warfare. It's like we're the last group that everybody thinks it's just okay to say whatever they want to say about us and do whatever they want to do. Satan is causing humanism and secularism And all the other isms to spread across this globe. And and people who stand up for biblical principles are made to look like absolute fools. But what Jesus is saying, you stay in the fight until the end. The Christian life's not a hundred yard sprint, it's a marathon. And who did Jesus say would be saved? Is it all those who have been baptized who will be saved? No. Is it all those who have joined a church who will be saved? No. Is it everybody who's been through a confirmation class who will be saved? No. It's those who endure to the end who will be saved. Now, word of caution here. Jesus is not saying your endurance or perseverance is what saves you. The Bible's clear about salvation. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that nobody can boast. But a saving faith is a persevering faith. That's the message. Job said, though, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Now, folks, I recognize there's temporary setbacks in life. We all stumble from time to time. We all go through valleys and trials. But what about the person who seems to walk away from their faith and never return? Or what about the professing Christian whose life never, ever, ever bears any fruit for the Lord? I think one of the very distinct possibilities is they never had spiritual life to begin with. It's not that they had it and lost it. They never had it. Because where there's genuine conversion, the Holy Spirit builds into it this perseverance and endurance. That's one of the characteristics of saving faith. Think about Simon Peter and Judas. Here was Simon Peter. He denied the Lord three times, but he repented. He wept before God and he repented and God restored him and he endured to the very end and gave his life for the Lord. Why? Because he had it. You think about Judas who turned away from the Lord and he never came back. He didn't have it. Peter possessed it. Judas didn't. One endured. One didn't. Those who are saved will persevere. And though Paul is saying here, those who persevere will reign with him one day. Amen. Again, the context of Matthew 10 and 24. The context of Matthew 10. Jesus is talking about being brought before authorities and being beaten. Family members turning against you because of your faith. All men hating you. Matthew 24. False prophets and wars and catastrophes. Love growing cold. Murder. What comes to the surface in both of those passages? That the Christian... The Christian has to carry on sometimes amidst very difficult circumstances. What's the world saying? What's the world saying? Look at those Christians. Look at those Christians and what they're saying. Who do they think they are? Let's silence them in places in the world let's imprison them let's put them in chains let's put them in prison let's kill them and that's happening all over the world today all the kings and queens and emperors and leaders of the world sitting in their positions of power are thinking they they are the ones who reign or in charge and what does Jesus say no If you've died with him, you shall also reign with him. You're going to reign. These people around the world persecuting Christians think they're in charge, think they have the last say. No, 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 no. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I'm the one right now looking at king, kings and queens. Right? Maybe not right now. But one day, you don't think you're going to be in heaven just floating around on a cloud and playing harp, do you? Bible says we're going to reign with him one day. I want you to see lastly, just just quickly. We don't have time here. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. We serve a God who is faithful. We serve a God who cannot lie. Men may disappoint us. Men may deny the Lord. Men may look for the easy way out to save their skin. But folks, we serve a God who is faithful to the end. And He's our refuge, our tower of strength, our deliverer. And he will not deny himself and he will not deny his promises that he's made to his people. That's one thing that's better than taking it to the bank because we have his character to bank it on. The faithfulness of the Lord.
1: Back to an earlier thought. Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ?
0: Is there somebody here this morning? Sin Adam, you have never been born again. Adam, you in, in Adam he, who represents us, we die. We die. You can die one day. You say, well, I know that. Everybody's going to die if Jesus tear. I'm talking about a deeper kind of death, a spiritual death. You're going to die. And you're going to be separated from God. That's what God's Word tells us. You're still in the guilt of your sin. Separation. Condemnation. Those in Christ, glory, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace with God. You're going to die too if Jesus tears, but guess what? You're going to reign with Him. You're going to live. Christ represents you. Everybody. Adam, Christ. And you know what? It's by God's grace that you move From one end of the spectrum to the other. It's through salvation in Jesus.
1: Come to Him. Come to Him.
0: Those who are in Christ, don't you let anybody tell you it's going to be easy. People say, Pastor, I'm going through this at home, I'm going through this at work, I'm going through this in my parenting, I'm going through this in my marriage, I, I'm going through this and, this and this. And they talk about all these trials that they're experiencing because they believe in Jesus and people at school or work making fun of them. And, and they're like, is something wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you. That's what the Bible says the Christian life's going to be. If nobody ever did oppose you, you never did go through any trials or valleys, that quite frankly makes me wonder what kind of faith you have. Because in chapter 3, verse 12, we're going to read all of those, not 80%, not 90%, not 99.9%. Paul says all of those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Christians, you've got a cross to bear. You need to get out of your mind, oh, if it's convenient, if it suits my schedule, if this, if this, if all the... We need to quit making excuses. Jesus said a true Christian will deny himself and pick up his cross and follow Jesus. My friend, you're going to go
1: from death to life.